We were watching um, the convention, and um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, your, our governor, was speaking. I don't know if you, any of you saw that, but, um, um, you know, it's, we make, people make fun of Arnold because he says, California, I'm the governor of California, the great state of California. And uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger moved to the United States of America in the 1970s to continue his bodybuilding career. He won Mr. Olympia six times, or I think somebody corrected me and said eight times, and I, you can do the research and find out how many it was, but a lot of times. Guinness Book of World Records said he was the best developed human, best developed man in the history of the world. Now, you could contend that, I suppose, but that's interesting that Guinness Book of World Records said that about our governor. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Tonight, I want to talk to you about God's bodybuilding program, the church, because I want to see the Lord build a body, not an audience, but a body, a body rightly connected to the head, Christ, rightly connected to the Holy Spirit, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a few moments, and rightly connected to each other, where we are nourishing one another in love, the body of Christ. Bodybuilding is a multi-billion dollar per year business these days. Pumping iron, bicycling, rowing, all sorts of great ways to keep the body in shape. And that's great. The Bible says bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. A poll was conducted. I have uh, the results somewhere in a box in where my books are. But a, a poll was given asking people, if there was one thing about your life you could change, what would it be? What do you think people said? Physical appearance. Several categories. Some said weight. Some said height. Some said body type. Hair color, of course, that's a lot easier to change these days. But it was all having to do with outward appearance. Not one person said character, motivation, relationship with people. It was all about building the body. Now, the body of Christ, and I want to show you a few instances in Ephesians only. But the, the term, the body of Christ, is one of Paul's favorite metaphors, descriptions of the church. He used it a lot. And so he thought in terms of a physical body corresponding to the way the spiritual body, the church, ought to act. But go back with me to chapter 1 and look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 2, verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Chapter 3, verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. 
chapter 4, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Have you ever heard somebody say, I don't need a church. I don't believe in organized religion. Let me decode that for you. This is what they're saying. I don't want to be accountable to anybody else. I want to do my own thing whenever I feel like it. That's all that means. Because the truth is, you do need the church, the body of Christ, and the church, the body of Christ, needs you. Solomon, in Proverbs 18, verse 1, said this, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. We all need to be accountable to someone. Thus, truth of the matter is, we all need the church. There's a phrase that is repeated over 70 times in the New Testament alone. It's the term one another. Love one another, care for one another, um, serve one another. 70 times plus that phrase is used of Christians, of the relationship we have with people. Now, sometimes people will ask me, well, can't I be a Christian without joining a church? Well, technically, yes, because you become a Christian by faith in Christ alone. But being a Christian without joining a church and being committed over and over again to a group of people, it's like, being a soldier without an army. It's like being a bee without a hive. It's like being a tuba player without the rest of the orchestra. I don't know if you've ever heard a tuba player. They're great. But if you just hear tuba alone, like if I were to say, we're going to lead worship tonight and took out my tuba, not that I have one, nor do I play one. It wouldn't go over very well. You need other instruments to bring harmony and balance. That's building the body. Now, so far, we've looked at the wealth of the believer, and we started on the walk of the believer. And last week, we talked about walking worthy, what it means to walk worthy. And last week, we talked about, do you have a worthy walk or a wimpy walk? And we gave you four characteristics of a walk that is worthy. A worthy walk is defined by consistency. It means that what you say corresponds to what you do. We saw that a worthy walk is demonstrated by humility. We walk in lowliness and humility with each other, not arrogantly puffing ourselves up before each other. We saw that a worthy walk is dignified by unity. We endeavor, we try to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And to what we're speaking about tonight, we walk worthy, a worthy walk is demonstrated by variety or diversity. And that's where we begin in verse 7 of chapter 4, where it says, but to each one of us, that's the individuality now, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We discover that when it comes to a walk, a spiritual walk, that we don't walk alone. And 
I touched on something that I just want to reinforce tonight. We in, in the West, Western evangelical Christianity, we love the phrase, a personal relationship with Christ. And I love it too. We ask people, do you know Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Now, most people who have never heard that phrase before look at you like you're from Mars when you ask that question. A personal relationship with somebody I don't see? Huh? And though it's a good phrase to describe that it's not a religion, it's not based on ritual, it's based on knowing and interacting with the living God on a daily basis, sometimes we in the West translate personal relationship to mean private relationship. Well, it's my own personal private relationship with Jesus. Don't ask me questions. I don't need to be accountable to anyone. It's my relationship with Jesus. That's hooey. That's bunk. There's no such thing. We're in a body. We're connected to one another. And it is to be a mutual accountability. Truth of the matter is, you really couldn't get a lot of us together any other way but through Jesus Christ. The only other way, the only way walls could be broken down significantly to get us all together is through what Christ has done. There's enough differences in our lives that would keep us at bay that it's only through Christ that we're brought together. Now, there's a key factor here, and it's the idea of the gift we mentioned in verse 7, and we'll see in the next few verses. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. You know what a gift is. You get them and you give them every Christmas or at Easter or on birthdays or on a special occasion, holiday of some kind, uh, anniversary. You give a gift. At Christmas time, you sometimes get gifts that you're not really into, you won't really use. You say thank you, but you hang it in the garage maybe. Or it turns out to be in a garage sale, eventually. Or it's the same gift. You get three packages of underwear or three of the same thing. And it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. God never gives useless gifts. Every gift God gives is useful for your personal edification and the edification of the church. To not use our gift, listen carefully. To not use the gifts that God has given to us is an affront to the one who gives them. Because he gave them to you for a purpose. Not so you can go on a little spiritual hideaway and go, I have a gift from the Lord. I love it all to myself. It's to be shared. So let's get into our text. Let's read it all together. And then we'll take it bit by bit. Or at least go down to verse 11 with me. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, 
some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Tonight, what I want to look at is in God's bodybuilding program, how does he do it? What is the pattern? Why does he do it? What's the purpose? And what does he do it with? Where's the power? That's what we want to look at. The pattern, the purpose, and the power, how he does it. Now, here's the the pattern in a nutshell. God equips saints by giving them gifts. Saints minister to the church, the body, and the body is built up. God gives the gifts to the people. People minister to the rest of the people, and the body of Christ is built up. Notice in verse 7 the word but. Now, you know that a lot of times I'll draw your attention to therefores or wherefores or but or and because they're very important. But is a word of contrast, and and it could be rendered, on the other hand, or in spite of that, look at this. Now, it's important that you keep the flow. In verses 1 through 6, Paul is speaking about the unity of the body, that we're one body, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one faith. But, he says, or on the other hand, or in contrast to that, to each one of us, grace was given. So now he's not speaking about the unity of all, but the individuality of each one. So he's shifting gears. Yes, it's true that there ought to be unity in the body, but it's also true that unity comes through a godly use of variety or diversity, as we touched upon last week. There is a difference between talents and gifts. We get them confused sometimes. We say, oh, that person has a spiritual gift of flying kites. I'm exaggerating a bit. He has a spiritual gift of speaking well. That's not a spiritual gift. It's a talent. Talents are natural. Gifts are supernatural. They're both from God, but they're different. Talents come to you at your first birth, the natural birth. They're part of your makeup. Unbelievers have talents. Unbelievers can cook. Unbelievers can swim. Unbelievers can paint. Unbelievers can build. Those are talents. Gifts come as a result of the second birth, being born again, and the Holy Spirit living inside of you and baptizing you with his power and equipping you to serve the body of Christ. So one is natural and one is supernatural. One has to do with natural Capacities. The other has to do with spiritual capabilities. We should discover our gifts and develop our talents. And I think we should interface our talents with our gifts. For example, a person might have the talent of speaking well. It could be that the Lord then will gift that person with the gift of encouragement. Be a good counselor or the gift of teaching or evangelism. It could be that a person has a a, a natural imaginary talent, loves to imagine, gets big vision. And it's great if the Lord then gives that person the gift of faith to go along with that visionary and that capacity to imagine, and great things can be done. 
Or a person might have a, a certain ability to speak without fear, stand in front of a group of people. That's a talent. But then the gift of teaching or the gift of evangelism can come alongside of that. Now, a, a word of caution. Talent doesn't necessarily mean gift. But just because you don't have a natural aptitude towards something doesn't mean that God can't give you a gift in that area. Okay? Example, Moses. Moses was afraid to speak. In fact, he stuttered. He said, Lord, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. In other words, I stutter. And you want me to be a spokesman for the children of Israel before Pharaoh, the king? You see, God put Moses in a situation where Moses had to, dis- to depend solely upon God to do a special work. So just because you don't have natural aptitude, there can be a spiritual capability in certain areas. Gifts are like fingerprints. Gifts are like fingerprints. These spiritual capabilities are distinct and different from one person to another. God loves variety, and God loves to express himself through a variety of means, a variety of people, a variety of gifts, a variety of denominations, because not one expression of God will adequately display his glory before the world. So God displays his attributes in a number of ways. What if all of the gifts at Christmas were identical? Boring. What if every place you went on vacation looked exactly the same? The terrain never changed. Boring. What if everybody in church thought and looked just like you did? Boring. What if everybody saw things the way you see them? Boring. You say, no, it'd be very wonderful, actually. I called that heaven. (laughs) But God loves variety. Unfortunately, we have spiritual molds. We want to save them and stick them in a mold. You read the version of the Bible I read. You dress like I dress. You sing like I sing and like the songs I like. Instead of the variety of the body. And you'll notice something, too. Even two people with the same spiritual gifts display them differently. Chuck Swindoll is a gift of teaching. Raul Reese has a gift of teaching. But you know what? They sound different. (laughs) And their gift is displayed differently. Or evangelism. Billy Graham can stand in front of a million people and just preach the gospel to everyone. (laughs) And he's not afraid. But if we put you in a stadium. Or... Some people love to evangelize by knocking on doors, never having met the person. The door opens, and they just start talking to them one-on-one and share the gospel. It's a gift of evangelism. It's displayed differently than Billy's gift in a stadium. Other people knock on the door and pray to God nobody's home. (laughs) Because it scares them to death to have to talk to someone one-on-one about the Lord in that fashion. So... Gifts are like fingerprints, and people with exactly the same gift may display it differently. That shouldn't surprise you if you look at the way Jesus healed people. Did he heal people all the same way? Did he walk up up to everyone and go, heal? No, he didn't. Sometimes he would touch somebody. Sometimes he would speak a word 
and they would be healed. Sometimes he'd do it from a distance. Sometimes he'd touch a person and then touch a person again a second time. At one occasion, he put dirt and spit in his hand and made a mud ball out of his spit and rubbed it in a guy's eye. That's novel. Each time was different. So enjoy the variety of gifts and talents that make up the body of Christ. Because when God made you, he threw away the mold. He threw away the mold. You are distinct and important. Okay, look at verse 12. It says, it's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Notice the pattern. Gifts equip the saints. Saints serve the body. The body is built up. God equips the saints. The saints serve the body and the body is built up. There is no single pastor or church staff that can do all the work of the ministry. No one person is that good. No one person is that talented. No one person is that gifted. And by the way, the pastor's purpose isn't to meet all the people's needs in the church. If I'm reading my Bible correct, the pastor's role is to equip people to meet the needs in the body of Christ. That's what it says for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I've been in the ministry now um, 25 years or so. I've been a Christian 31 years. And I've uh, noticed something about pastors, having counseled a lot of them who are started churches Pastors die the death of a thousand expectations. Uh, Everyone walking into a church facility has at least one, if not a hundred, expectations of leadership. That's just the way we are. Some of them are realistic expectations and ought to be met. Some of them are unrealistic expectations and will never be met. Moses, I've told you his story, and you've read it in Exodus 18, Uh, He was out there counseling people day in and day out. And Jethro, dad-in-law, thought, this is a mistake, Moses. You're going to burn out. You're going to burn them out because they have to wait for you. You need a better system. You need 70 men around you to help shoulder the load. Because as public ministry increases, your visibility must decrease. There's just too many people. You can't handle this. I've told you before about that study done from Stanford. I might have even talked about it last week, that the average church-going person expects his pastor to put in 135.5 hours a week, leaving him 4.5 hours per day to sleep, eat, have quality time with his family, uh, surf, bicycle, anything else he'd want to do. And that four and a half hours, that's it. Well, these are unrealistic expectations. Now, when our church started uh, in New Mexico, I set up the PA because I owned one. I brought the guitar out because I had one. I passed out sheets of music and led the worship, put the guitar down, opened up the Bible, counseled during the week, counted the money, deposited it in the bank, and then held a full-time job. But as we grew, I was on the lookout for other body parts. 
other feet, other hands, other mouths. And when somebody said, hey, I play piano. You do? Well, let me hear you. Well, you're pretty good. And I'd evaluate their spiritual walk and I'd say, come help me next week. Really? I can? Yep. And he started playing piano with me. Did that for about a month. Then I said, you can do it without me. And things got passed along as other body parts came along. Somebody told me, they tried to figure it out. They said, Skip, at the size that our church was in Albuquerque, if you tried to have personal contact with every single person in your congregation, you'd have to meet in four homes every single day, and it would take you 10 years. So it was unrealistic. I couldn't do that at that time. Now, it's more realistic here right now, but uh, uh doesn't mean I can come to your house next week for coffee. Uh, But the point is, is that there is a body that we want to raise up with gifts to take the load of ministry. Look at verse eight. Go back to verse eight. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. Notice that phrase. He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended. What does it mean? But that he first also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. This is what Paul is doing. He's quoting a psalm from the Old Testament, a psalm written by David, Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a psalm of victory over the Jebusites. When David and his armies came in and conquered the Jebusite city of Jebus, which became Jerusalem, as a lot of you know. He conquered that, and he wrote this beautiful hymn of praise. He said he led captivity captive. He ascended, and he's probably talking about ascending up to Mount Zion and leading the captives from their captivity. Now, that phrase, I just want to explain to you. When kings would conquer cities or nations... They would go in and take spoils of war and bring them back home. It's the stuff they got for winning the war. Help build up their treasury for another war. The second thing they would do is march the prisoners that they caught, that they captured, behind them, parading them in the streets to show, we beat them, here's their elite guard. And that display showed the power of the king in conquest. A third thing that was done is... His own troops, the king's own men, who had been captured by the enemy, were recaptured now by the king, and they were in the parade because now he was setting them free. So that's the thought here. He led captivity captive. Those who were previously captured by the enemy, Jesus Christ recaptured us, and we're parading before the world as being set free captive to Christ because he set us free from sin by his death and his resurrection. So it's a picture simply of Christ as the warrior who set us free, the triumphing warrior who set his subjects free uh, from Satan. Now, before Paul identifies the gifts, I'm going to get to those, there's a parenthetical statement, which means a statement in between parentheses. Parentheses begins in verse 9, ends in verse 10. Do you see it in your version? Here's the parenthesis. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he first also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What's he talking about? What he's talking about is Bethlehem. 
the incarnation. Jesus left heaven and came to earth. Now, some people make more out of this, saying he went down into the depths of of Sheol, and, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But this simply means he went from heaven to earth. I want to read this verse to you in the New Living Translation, which says, Now that it says he ascended, this means that Christ first came down to the lowly world in which we live. His incarnation, his humiliation on earth that preceded his ascension and glorification in heaven. Now, the term lower parts of the earth refers to death and burial. Jesus put it this way. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Speaking of physical death and burial that preceded his resurrection. Now, having said that, because that's what this means, he descended down to the earth, lived here for a while in humility before he ascended into heaven. Having said that, Peter tells us that Jesus, when he descended, descended even lower than Bethlehem, even lower than the earth, even lower than the cross, but down into the depths of the grave and made a proclamation. So keep your finger marked here. Turn over to first Peter. Just turn right till you see a street marked first Peter. Chapter three. We'll look at two verses. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. That's his atonement, vicarious atonement. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight souls were saved through water. And then look at verse 22, his ascension, who has gone into heaven And is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Between Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, when he was physically dead, he was still spiritually alive. This is before his resurrection. He went down, it says, and made a proclamation in Sheol, in the grave, a victory announcement. The early church fathers, in commenting on this verse said Jesus Christ announced triumph over demons in one part of Sheol, hell, and opened up the doors to another part of Sheol, releasing godly captives. Luke chapter 16 speaks about Abraham's bosom and that hell, Sheol, the grave, was divided before the resurrection. The division included the part of suffering. The other was the part of comfort. Abraham was comforting all of those Old Testament saints who looked forward to the Messiah's coming. They lived by faith. They died. They were comforted. So Jesus came, preached, made announcement. And one part of Sheol was open, letting those captives 
into the presence of God, because up to that point they were just comforted by Abraham. And then those who were tormented, it has probably doubled their torment. So I try to piece all that together and move on quickly. If you have any questions about this in particular, you can hit me up afterwards. Let's go back now to uh, Ephesians chapter 11. The point of it all, here's the point of Ephesians, is that the giver of gifts is the ascended Christ. And when he ascended, he enabled the Holy Spirit to come. Remember, Jesus said, if I go, the Holy Spirit will come. I will send him to you. So the ascended Christ enabled the Holy Spirit to come indwell us and give gifts to the church. So he descended, he ascended, the Holy Spirit came and gifts were given. In the body of Christ, Jesus is the head. The Holy Spirit, I see more or less as the nervous system. Conveying to the parts of the body the will of the brain, the will of the head, giving the orders. And the the parts of the body responding obediently to what Jesus, the head, is telling each part to do, corresponding to the gifts given by the Holy Spirit. As we're directed. Okay, look at verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. The gifts that are mentioned here, there are more, by the way, and many more spiritual gifts. You can read about them in the book of uh, Romans as well as the book of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. But, but these gifts are mentioned because... This is how the foundation of the church was laid with these gifted ones. And this is how we are equipped to serve in the body of Christ. Now, start with apostles. Apostles were the ones that were with Jesus from the beginning. Remember, he had lots of disciples, but he had 12 apostles. That's what the Gospels tell us. Of all of the disciples, learners, followers, Jesus picked 12 to be with him, the Bible says. Those he named apostles. They had to be with Jesus. There were the qualifications. They had to be with Jesus. They had to witness his resurrection. And they had to perform certain signs of an apostle. That's why Paul the apostle said, Have I not seen the Lord? And are not the works of an apostle manifest in me? So you had to be with Jesus physically on earth, witness his resurrection, and have signs and wonders to prove it. That's why, in a strict technical sense, there are no more apostles since the time of Christ. In a strict sense. In a functional sense, there are. That's why, in the list of spiritual gifts, an apostle is mentioned more than once. You say, well, how do I know this? Well, if you read your New Testament, you'll know that not only were the 12 apostles called apostles, but Barnabas, who didn't see the Lord, didn't witness his resurrection, didn't necessarily perform signs and wonders that are recorded, is called an apostle. Timothy didn't see Jesus, didn't witness his resurrection, is called an apostle. Silvanus didn't see Jesus, didn't witness his resurrection, is called an apostle. Andronicus and Junia are all people the New Testament designates as apostles in a functional sense. You say, Skip, I'm confused. You said, there are no more apostles. Now you're saying, well, there are apostles. 
What do you mean? What I mean is there are no more apostles, but then there are apostles in a functional sense. In this sense, the term apostolos, apostle, literally means one sent out on a mission. One sent out on a mission. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, missionaries are still called apostles. And the designation seems to be, even in the New Testament, when these other people are called apostles, that they have general leadership over a number of churches. And their word has weight and authority. General leadership over a number of churches. They're an apostle, not just a singular pastor, but like a pastor's pastor. And they bear weight in their word and their authority. By the way, there is a book, if you care to research it, called the Didache, or the Didache, if you want to call it that. The Didache, or the Didache, uh, means the te- was the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It is not a scriptural book, but it is a document that supposedly the early apostles wrote. And they designate the term missionary as one who's an apostle. Look at the next, uh, next gift on the list, prophets. What does that mean? What's a prophet? You think, well, it's somebody who tells the future. Sort of. It is somebody who foretells the future. But it's also somebody who foretells the truth. Could be a challenge, a warning, a judgment. Foretelling the future, foretelling or speaking forth the word of God. Isaiah foretold the future. But sometimes Isaiah foretold a warning or judgment or admonition from God to kings and to nations. In the New Testament, there's a guy named Agabus. He foretold the future. Sometimes people foretold a message from God. I look at Billy Graham as a prophet of sorts. Uh, Billy Graham is a prophet to nations. He's respected in just about every nation on earth. Kings, politicians uh, in America, prime ministers in other countries, long for an audience with him. I was in Washington, D.C. at the presidential prayer breakfast about five years ago, and one of the senators was speaking with Franklin Graham, who was next to me, and he said, More people want to see your father when he comes to town than anybody else. If they know your father's in town, they want to talk to him. He's like the nation's pastor, an apostle to politicians, leaders, and other nations. Next on the list is evangelists. Philip in the New Testament was an evangelist. Peter became an evangelist. He was a fisherman. Jesus said, drop your nets, boy. I'm paraphrasing it. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And his first fishing expedition was quite successful. 3,000 souls in Jerusalem came to know Christ. He was an evangelist. These people build up the church. Prophets, evangelists. And then look, pastors and teachers. You see the word and in between pastors and teachers? You read that and you might think, well, there's... Two different people it's speaking about, pastors and teachers. But there's a Greek rule called the Granville Sharps rule that renders this phrase as one person. 
in the original, it's poimenas kai didaskalus, pastors and teachers. But it would literally be translated according to this Greek rule, and I asked a Greek professor about this, pastor, that is a teacher, or pastor, in particular, a teacher. Here's the point. One of the marks that a person is called as a pastor is that he has to have a gift of teaching. That's one of the qualifications Paul said to Timothy, apt to teach. Now, you can be a teacher without being a pastor, but you cannot be a pastor unless you have a God-given gift of teaching. That's what this verse tells us. Pastor, that is, or in particular, a teacher. To me, it's always been sad that when churches look for pastors, they often don't look for teachers. They want program directors. They want coaches. But they don't always look for a teacher. To the detriment of the church. Hosea the prophet bewailed the fact, my people, he said, perish for lack of. Of knowledge. Now, some pastors who are program directors and coaches will tip their hat to the scripture and even open up and read a Bible verse. But it's almost the method is um, mention the text, depart from the text, and never return to the text. Instead of teaching the text, it's a difference between. Preaching and teaching from the Bible and preaching and teaching the Bible. You want to equip people for works of service, teach them the Bible. Teach them what God's word says, what God's word is, the promises of God. That's where the power is. And so a pastor, that is, or in particular, a teacher. Now, why does God do it? Here's the purpose. Verse 13. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, stop there for a moment, because we're going to read that again. To anyone who would think, I don't need church. To anyone who would say, I don't need any kind of formalized gathering or meeting, then I'm going to ask you, does this verse describe you? Are you there yet? Have you come to the unity of faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God? Do you know God perfectly? To a perfect man? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Hey, listen, I've been a Christian 31 years, and I'm not there yet. I still have a long way to go. Okay, let's go on. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Here's the purpose. There are three purposes for God's bodybuilding program. Number one, unity. The unity of the faith, he calls it, verse 13, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The unity of the faith is where we all agree on the essentials of the Christian doctrine, the historic essentials, and the body of Christ functions smoothly. I've been told that we have in our brains or in our bodies at least, our brains presumably, a uh, hundred billion neurons, hundred billion nerve cells that are all connected somehow to the body. Those uh, nerves, billions and billions of them, 
can record everything you hear, everything you feel, everything you see, and controls over 600 muscles and ligaments and makes that thing very smooth. Jesus is the head of the body. He gives the orders, the impulse. The Holy Spirit transmits it, enabling you, gifting you to be able to do whatever the brain is telling you to do. The reason the body of Christ doesn't function smoothly is because the parts don't get the message. The reason the body of Christ doesn't function smoothly is because the parts don't get the message. There's a lot of spiritually ignorant people in churches all around the world. I had a pastor admit to me. He said, Skip, my church is biblically illiterate. How sad. Well, no wonder there's no smooth function in the body of Christ, no coordinated effort, because the parts aren't getting the message through the word of God. I had a friend who had multiple sclerosis. I did a little research on that disease, hardened patches on the cerebral cortex so that the message doesn't go all the way through. The impulse is blocked. And so instead of smooth motions, my friend John was in a wheelchair and they were very jerky motions. The church observed by the world doesn't look like this. It looks like this all the time. Because the parts don't get the message. Once the parts get the message and we correspond with the spiritual gift, it's wonderful. I want you to listen to a poll. A survey was taken by a consultant, took a church survey of nearly a thousand churches. And he discovered when he asked this question, why does the church exist? He asked this to church people, Christians around the country of a thousand churches. Why does the church exist? Of church members surveyed, 89% said, quote, the church's purpose is to take care of my families and my needs, close quote. That's so American, isn't it? It's all about me. No, it's all about him. And we're parts connected to the head to do what he wants. So unity of the faith. Second is maturity. Look at that next phrase. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. That simply means mature. Teleos means complete or a mature person. The Amplified Bible renders this, that we might arrive at really mature manhood. When we're first saved, well, what's the description Jesus gave? When you first get saved, he called it what? Born again, new birth. You're a baby spiritually. You're in diapers spiritually. That's wonderful to see. We love it, don't we? We clap at it. But you don't want to stay there. You want to go from that level to maturity. A perfect man, a mature man or woman in Christ. But a lot of times church people don't do that. Have you ever seen an adult throw a temper tantrum? It's a very sad thing to watch, but it happens. And spiritually, we can do that because we don't grow. We grow old, but we don't grow up. The point is to grow up. Unity, maturity, and the third purpose of God's bodybuilding program, stability. 
Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Cults are all over the place infiltrating churches around the world looking for people who don't know their Bibles. I know this. I remember in Albuquerque at our, we had our second of four services on Sunday. Right over to my left, there were always three Mormon missionaries. I could tell because they were about 20 years old and they had a badge, elder so-and-so, white shirt and tie, dead giveaway. (laughs) So I'd always walk up to them and go, well, elder so-and-so. Even though he was a younger so-and-so, I called him elder because that's what his badge said. I said, what are you doing here? He said, oh, we're just hanging out. But I'd watch him hanging out. They were hanging out looking for people who looked like easy targets. And so we spoke to them lovingly, definitely, firmly. And if they didn't come to Christ, and if they were there for the wrong reason, they weren't welcome. If they were there to grow in the faith and were open-minded and we kept a good eye on them, great. But you know what? Lots of people leave Christian churches, and the majority of people who leave Christian churches and go to cults, almost all of them grew up in traditional evangelical churches who weren't fed. By the way, my heart is for kids, young people. Now, I know that's a very um, loose term when you say young people because I'm looking at young people right now, right? You're all young at heart, all of us. Young people have this knack of listening to things and saying, That's not real. That's just stuff. That's weird. The average age in the United States of America is 25. The average age of church members is 55. It's okay. We love 55-year-olds and up. But the average American's 25. And so our heart should be to include that next generation. Okay, let's close up. We don't have much time. What does God do it with? Where's the power? Verse 16, 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Jesus is the head. Holy Spirit is the nervous system. Love is the circulatory system. It's the blood. We need to be rightly connected to Jesus, rightly connected to the Holy Spirit, listening to what he wants us to do, rightly connected to each other, and we join together, and we love each other, and we build each other up. Now, notice the relationship in closing here between truth and love. Speaking the truth in love. Speak the truth, but do it in love. But love people enough to speak the truth to them. You get the balance? Sometimes we think, I, I, I don't want to say anything truthful to them because they might be offended. Like if I tell them that Jesus loves them, but if they don't receive Christ, that there is a hell literally to pay. Well, that's not very loving. Have you ever heard that? It's not very loving to tell that to people. It's the most loving thing you could do because you want to get them to heaven. And sometimes a brother and sister needs to be confronted 
And have you ever heard this? You have no right to judge me. We're going to talk about that Sunday. Called, Can the Christian Be a Critic? Out of Matthew chapter 7. Now, what if, what if Elijah thought that way? He never would have confronted the prophets of Baal, would he? Uh, what if Paul the Apostle thought that way? He never would have confronted the Judaizers in Jerusalem in Acts 15. Um, what if Jesus thought that way? Do you think he would have taken a whip in the temple and drove people out? Was Jesus loving when he did that? You better answer yes. He was incarnate love. Look at incarnate love go. He's got a whip. And he's whipping them out of the temple because he loves the sheep enough to protect them from the wolves. So we need to speak the truth. But we need to speak the truth in love, and there's a beautiful balance here. So Arnold Schwarzenegger may be, at least at one time, the most developed man in the history of the world, according to Guinness Book of World Records. But what I'm interested in is the body of Christ being the best, most developed body we can be. Till Jesus comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We've spent a good long time together over a few verses of Scripture. But because the body of Christ is mentioned not just a lot here, but so often in other parts of the New Testament, we know that the church is so dear to your heart. Ever since the Lord Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, I pray that we would all be rightly connected to Jesus as our Lord, our Master, our Savior. That we would love Him supremely by doing so, love You supremely. Be rightly connected to the Holy Spirit as He seeks to convey to us the message of Christ. And that we would use our gifts to honor You to honor him, and then to bless and build up each other. Lord, just hearing tonight from Mike, who has a desire to go out and plant a church, and others who have a desire to help with technology and media, or others who are musicians, or others who are counselors, encouragers, prayer warriors, exercising their gifts, combining them with their natural talents, I pray, Lord, that we would build now community among us. We'd get to know more people here. We'd be committed to each other here through thick and thin, no matter what. Strengthen our bonds of love and peace and birth great joy out of that fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray. And the body said, Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. And I will serve thee, I will serve because, thee I because I love you.